So I was listening to a podcast on the truth in love, which is actually produced by ACBC, which if you aren't aware, that is the counseling organization that the counselors at Grace are um, certified under. And the podcast uh, I was listening to, they were interviewing a man by the name of Matt Rayher, and he has written a book, and so they were talking about that, and uh, I don't remember what the name of the book is. It actually looks really interesting, um, so I should need to get the name so that I can tell you what that is. It doesn't really pertain to what we're talking about tonight, but what I wanted to do is I wanted to share with you just a smidge of his testimony. He doesn't really give a whole lot on that podcast. I guess he gives a lot more in the book, but from his testimony, he goes ahead and then that is kind of the catalyst into why he wrote the book that he wrote on memory, actually. And so anyways, <clears throat> this is actually taken, I just quoted exactly what he said. So this is, this is his words. And this apparently happened 17 years ago. <clears throat> he is, well, just to give you a little bit of a history on him as well, he's been married for 18 years. So this uh, trial happened a year after he was married. And he is a medical doctor that works in the ER. So anyways, that gives you just a tiny bit of background on him. He's an elder at his church as well and a counselor, I believe. So he said this, my mom, dad, and two sisters were driving down to help us move, him and his wife. I had just finished my first year of medical school at Baylor College in Med of Medicine in Houston, Texas. And on the trip down from Amarillo, they got into a car accident that end up being fatal for all four of them. You can imagine, you're sitting there waiting for them to come and they don't show up. I ended up calling 911 at some point, trying to locate them and found out about the accident. It was incredibly traumatic. It was the worst day of my life and what I found at the time was the Lord was very gracious. He was right there with me. In fact, the words that I fell into were from Psalm 73. Whom have I have in heaven besides you? I remember pausing on that, crying and thinking, I have more people in heaven now. So two things that he really wrestled with was the fear of forgetting them and wondering why in the world God had left him on this earth. The Lord had chosen in his sovereignty to take his whole family. Why had he not included Mr. Rayher? in that as well. He could have been in the car accident, but God had chosen for his own purposes for him to live. God did not call him home to heaven on that faithful day. Instead, God's sovereign plan was for him to live through that experience, suffering the pain of loss and all the heartache that accompanied it. Did God make a mistake? Was this an indication that God had forgotten about him? Or perhaps that God didn't love him? Of course not. We know that that's not true. God orchestrated this devastating trial in his life for God's purpose and even for his good. I imagine when he woke up that morning, the day of the accident, that he did not expect to experience the worst day of his life that morning. He did not expect that trial, nor did he expect that he would have to learn how to live in the ensuing years without a family. But one thing he found to be true was that God was good and God was gracious in the midst of it. 
Often the trials we face are unexpected as well. We may say, I didn't expect the trial to look like this. Not all trials, of course, are as difficult as the one that he faced. But consider, so I've got listed here just a bunch of random examples. Do you think that the women who have faced these trials expected them? Perhaps maybe you could say, yeah, that actually is me. But I'm going to ask it as if it's she, so some random she out there. Did she expect that her young husband would lose his job? Did she expect her son or her husband would be addicted to pornography? Did she expect her health to become debilitating? Did she expect her children to walk away from the Lord in their young adult years? Did she expect her closest friend to betray her? Did she expect the elders to neglect her in her greatest hours of need? Did she expect to lose her child? Did she expect to grow older without finding a spouse? Did she expect being unable to have children? Did she expect to have multiple miscarriages or chronic car trouble, a husband that had a heart attack, to almost die in childbirth, not to be able to buy a house, to have an infant that needs surgery, or continual loneliness, or to struggle to make friends or build community in the new place that she'd moved. Trials come to us in all different forms. And one thing that is really consistent is we usually don't expect them. (laughs) There are so many trials we never expect to experience. But what are our expectations of the trials once we find ourselves experiencing it? So we've asked the question, you know, did we expect these trials? Now, once we find ourselves in a trial, we also have expectations of the things that transpire within the trial. So here's perhaps some of our expectations in the trial. I expected to know the reason why I'm facing this trial. How many of us have walked through a trial and just wanted to know why? If I could just know why. If you could just know why, you probably wouldn't need to walk so much by faith. I expected some form of explanation. And I'm not getting any explanation, not from anybody and not from the Bible. I expect that if I did everything right, I could avoid the trial. How many of you have done everything according to God's word in a particular area and then found that things did not go as you planned and you still ended up walking through a devastating trial? Sometimes those rock our world more than anything else when we have been striving to do the right thing and yet we still end up in the middle of a messy, difficult, hard trial. I didn't expect the trial to last so long. If you've walked through long trials, you understand. We hope so often in the middle of a long trial, we're looking for that day when we will be free from it. And as we start to count the years, we're like, surely it'll be over in two years. Surely three, but certainly five. And then it continues on and on. 
When will this trial end? I did not expect it to last that long. I expected to protect my loved ones so they would not have to walk through trials. I didn't expect to be so alone in my trial. I expected God, ultimately, to keep me from trials. And I think that as well, there's all these different aspects of this. But I don't know that we often consciously think about that one. I expected that God should protect me from trials. But a lot of times as we are facing trials, we realize, whoa, I think I really did expect that God would keep me from facing trials. Because now that I'm in the middle of it, it's tearing me apart. I didn't expect the trial to be this difficult. And I, I didn't expect the trial, excuse me, I did expect that the trial would surely be over by now, and yet I continue to walk in it. If there is one way that perhaps we struggle more than others to view life accurately, it might be in this arena of the expectations we have of trials. First, we often don't expect to experience trials at all, because is that not the message that we get from the world? And I don't know what y'all's experience has been, but the circles that I was in, particularly as a young person out in California, was very much like, come to Jesus because he will make your life better. And what do you find when you come to Jesus? He came to bring a sword. That doesn't sound easier to me, like my life is great. No, that's Joel Osteen's theology, right? When we chose to follow Christ, we realized that trials and struggles come along with that. Then when we do face various trials, they often look differently than what we thought they would. They come from places we never dreamed were possible, and they dredge up in us feelings and responses we didn't even think were possible coming from us. Even when we know we should expect trials in this life, we often wrestle in the midst of them because our hearts tend to focus more on getting out from under the trial, escaping its difficulty and pain, rather than focusing on how to please God in the midst of the trial. There's two very important aspects of trials here, I guess, that really are very opposite of one another. The continual desire to get out of it, and the other, to ask the Lord to strengthen us to walk through it well. And obviously, that's our goal, to walk through it well. So first, what I'm going to do is, we're going to jump onto our outline now, is we're going to look at three particular means by which trials come upon us. So capital A, three pathways by which we experience trials. So I couldn't figure out a better word, so I said pathways, but avenues, ways, whatever you want to put there. But anyways, the first one is persecution. So I'm going to read here, we're going to look at three main passages tonight. And the first one is 1 Peter 4, reading in verse 12. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, that would be fabulous. So I'm going to start reading in verse 12. And it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, 
you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests on you. So persecution can come in ways that we do not expect. Perhaps your mother prefers your siblings over you since you are striving to live in obedience to Christ through his word. That's a real thing. If you are the only one that is a believer in your family, sometimes that just draws a line right there in your family. Perhaps your mom neglects your children and favors her other grandchildren because you are a Christian. We don't necessarily expect these kinds of things to happen, and yet they, they really do, and they're very painful as we walk through them. So perhaps your adult unbelieving children have broken ties with you and are estranged from you because they hate your message of Christ. Or perhaps it is a sibling that has turned his or her back on your whole family because they have rejected Christ. Or maybe you have experienced ridicule from coworkers or have been denied promotions because you choose to live in a manner that pleases the Lord. I remember when we were in California and Craig worked for a company out there and he did the job. He actually did the job well and he kept hoping for the next promotion and they kept overlooking him and overlooking him and overlooking him. And he was really an anomaly with the group of people that he worked with. He worked for Enterprise Rent-A-Car and it's a massively huge company and he was a manager looking to be an area manager and moving up from there. But one thing that he began to realize over the course of the years was Craig was a family man. He had a wife and four little kids at home and his wife didn't work. And so guess what? He would go put in the hours and they worked very long days. He would oftentimes leave at 6.30 in the morning and not get home till 6.30 at night. So he worked long days and half Saturdays many, many weeks. So he was putting in a lot of hours, but they wanted him to put in hours on top of that. And really what they wanted him to do was to go socialize and go hang out. Um, Typically, it was the bar. They would go hang out and drink and get to know each other. And Craig was not interested in doing that, and he never was going to do that. And so consequently, they never said it, but they kept overlooking him for every promotion. And of course, now as we look back, we realize that as God prevented that, that's actually one of the reasons that we ended up moving out here. So praise the Lord for all of that, (laughs) because we probably wouldn't have if he would have continued to get those promotions. But persecution can look different in all different ways. Those are just some of the lighter forms that we may feel here in America compared to many other countries. So anyway, persecution is one area that we find that we may face trials. Number two, various difficulties in a fallen world. So this is another way that we experience trials. So 1 Peter 1, 6 says, Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So we know that there's, this is not talking about like the degree of trials. This is talking about a wide variety of trials. And in James 1, in verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter what? Various trials. So we know that trials come in all different Um, shapes and sizes and lengths and severity and all these different things. Various trials refers to many varieties 
that are common to living in a fallen world. Some can be lifetime trials that you will never be free from, while others are maybe just temporary, like, you know, when all of your kids end up with the flu for three days and they're all throwing up. That is a severe trial when you're walking through. <laughs> At least it felt like it. Anyways, but it's a short trial. It's over by the end of the week. But then we have other trials that last a bit longer. We have things like car accidents, injuries from those things, unexpected bills, chronic health challenges, relational challenges, rebellious teens, sick babies and toddlers, difficulty in pregnancy and childbirth, loneliness, longing for marriage, infertility, being married to an unbeliever, difficult boss, difficult roommate, difficult husband, difficult mother or mother-in-law. Like the, the gamut is so wide. Oh of our sin. So trials come as a result of our sin as well. So some possible examples could be just examples of what consequences of sin look like. Greed or discontentment that leads to credit card debt that becomes a financial burden, strapping you to the payments for a long period of time. That's just the natural consequence of sinful decisions. <clears throat> Being disobedient to scripture by marrying an unbeliever, which leads to many heartaches in marriage and in parenting. Laziness and child training that results in rebellious teens who disrespect parents and other forms of authority. There's all kinds of ways that we are disobedient to scripture and that brings the natural consequence to that disobedient, but to that disobedience. But what it is, is it produces trials that we end up walking through. So there are two examples actually from scripture that I wanted to remind you of. So the first one is taken from Numbers starting in verse 7. And this is the example of Moses here. And I want you just to listen to these as I read them because I think it is a good reminder of why it's so important that we walk according to scripture. So it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take the rod... And you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. <clears throat> so Moses took the rod from before the Lord, just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock. And he said to them, listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. So keep in mind what the context is here. They've been wandering in the wilderness, and what, what is the goal? Their goal is to get out of the wilderness and go into the promised land that God was going to give them. This was a huge, big deal. Moses had been putting up with these rebellious Israelites for so long, leading them. And when God gave him a command to speak to the rock, Moses, in frustration, whatever the motives were, Moses disobeyed God, and God said, because of that, you will not go into the promised land. So then later in Deuteronomy, 
<clears throat> this is um, Moses, and he says, Deuteronomy 3, 23 through 27. I also pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness in your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Let me, I pray, cross over and see the fair land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough! Speak to me no more of this matter. Go up to the top of Pigzah and lift up your eyes to the west and the north and the south and the east and see it with your eyes, for, for you shall not cross over the Jordan. That was a trial to Moses because that is what he so longed to be able to do. But because of his disobedience, he walked through that trial as the consequence to his sin. And then we have also in 2 Samuel with David, 2 Samuel 12, 7 through 11. <clears throat> Nathan then said to David, now you remember what has happened with David and the sin with uh, Bathsheba, and then he murdered Uriah, so you guys remember all of that. So Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. It is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You remember all the sin and destruction that came on David's family because it was the consequence of his sin. So many trials that David faced when Absalom tried to take over the kingdom, when his daughter was raped by Ammon, you remember there was just so many trials and difficulties, and it was a consequence of David's sin. So sin can lead to trials because of the consequences that they produce. These three paths that we just mentioned, persecution, just the normal various trials in a fallen world and the consequences of sin can be summed up under God's discipline. And that's what, of course, we know from the, the writer of Hebrews. So this is another passage that we're going to kind of focus on tonight. <clears throat> so B, trials are a result of God's discipline. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 12, 5 through 8. <clears throat> And I'll begin reading in verse 5. It says, And you have forgotten the exhortation, which is addressed to you as my sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children 
and not sons. So we can tend to look at discipline. When we usually hear the word discipline, we tend to think of it in a negative context. But, and usually that's because it, we think about it as in terms of a punishment for some form of disobedience or sin. And discipline usually causes some form of pain. So usually we look at that uh, as somewhat of a negative thing. However, God's discipline is not negative because it is used to produce righteousness in us. In verse 11, it says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And as Hebrews commentary on the passage, John MacArthur lists three reasons we experience God's discipline. We think we will find them, so I'm thinking that we will find them helpful because, sorry, I'm having a little bit of trouble focusing with my throat being so weird. Anyways, um, so what I wanted to do is I wanted to give you these three things that John MacArthur explained just simply because I think it helps us to understand a broader scope of what discipline looks like because we tend to think of it as usually punitive or judgment. So anyways, I think his explanation is helpful. So the first thing is, number one on your outline, it's punishment for sin, and that's what we were just looking at a second ago. God uses trials as punishment for our sin. That is God's discipline in direct response to our sin, but it is corrective, not judgmental. So when God disciplines his children, it's to correct us, not to damn us to hell. There's a big difference. It's not punishment that leads to ultimate damnation. It is a punishment that is focused on us being corrected in our behavior so that we would live then in a manner that pleases him in righteousness. So then two, we have prevention. So sometimes God disciplines us in order to prevent sin. And this was true of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. So <clears throat> I'm going to read that to you in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. It says, now you remember that Paul was dealing with the thorn in the flesh. So it says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So in this case, as God using discipline for prevention, Paul was not being sinful. So this was not a response or a consequence to Paul's sin. Instead, God brought this discipline to prevent him from sinning. And I guess you could think about it as parents, where we have guidelines or restrictions that we put on our own children to prevent them from sinning. Like you put a a fence around a backyard 
to keep them in so they don't run out into the yard. It's kind of the same idea here. Now to the child who really wants to run out and play in all the yards, that would be a trial for them. But you have put it there to protect them, to keep them safe. So it's kind of that same idea. And then the third one is education. Sometimes God can get our attention better through affliction than through blessing. And is that not true? When we are experiencing blessings, we're happy about it. It's wonderful. We might say a flitting little thank you as we go on our merry way. But what happens when we're slammed with a difficult trial? We're all ears. We're looking into the word. We're praying. We're concerned. So oftentimes it's the trials that God uses to discipline us, as it were, to educate us. Psalm 119.71 says, and I know I've, I've referred to this verse before. It says, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? That I may learn your statutes. So when God uses his discipline to educate us, he brings those trials because it's oftentimes through the trial that we begin to dig into his word, that we begin to cry out to him in prayer. Trials often drive us to God in prayer and to his word so we might understand how we should respond. James explained that when we are facing trials, we need wisdom, and thus we should go to God and ask him for the wisdom we need in that trial. So James 1.5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Because what do we often find when we walk through trials? Help me. I need wisdom, particularly when it's a hard and difficult trial. We need to understand how to respond rightly, what we should be doing. Though we might intellectually know that trials are benefit, beneficial, I would guess that none of us want to experience them. Or are you guys all like trial lovers? <laughs> Not so much. How many of you hope that tonight you will come down with a stomach bug and be up all night long over the toilet? None of us. Or perhaps you're just dying for your car to break down on the way home tonight. Or maybe that tomorrow when you get the mail, you'll get some big, hefty, unexpected bill for some medical thing that happened five years ago. These are not the things that we look for and desire, are they? We don't sit around waiting and looking with anticipation for the next trial. <clears throat> Instead, probably most of us expect to go home safely, have a decent-ish night's sleep, and get up tomorrow and accomplish all the things on our to-do list with the overall expectation that we will have a busy, we're expecting December's probably going to be busy, but good as we celebrate Christmas. That's probably the majority of us. We don't even realize it. We probably haven't even consciously thought of it. But if we had to think about it, we realize that's kind of what we're just expecting and hoping for. Now, is there anything wrong with expecting or even desiring to avoid trials? I don't think so. But what I really want to do is give you a little different perspective. <clears throat> Perhaps it won't make you eager for trials as we look at this other little perspective, but maybe it will help you respond rightly when you are blindsided by unexpected trials. So see, a life without trials is spiritually dangerous. 
And I don't know that we often really consider that a whole bunch, that we really, I mean, we say it maybe a little bit. We need trials because God works through trials. But <clears throat> to really think about the fact that there really is a spiritual danger to not having trials. So number one, we have a tendency to go astray without trials. Trials are good because they keep us in constant pursuit of the Lord. Psalm 119.67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And David expressed the pride that accompanies times that are absent from trials. In Psalm 30, verse 6, he says, Now as for me, I said in my prosperity, I will never be moved. Just this expectation, everything's great, everyone's healthy, the bills are paid, there's plenty of food on the table. Life just seems to be going great right now. I will not be moved. It will always be this way. Well, Spurgeon has some insight on that. He says, <clears throat> When all his foes were quiet and his rebellious son dead and buried, then was the time of peril. No temptation is so bad as tranquility. I said I shall never be moved. Ah, David, you said more than was wise to say or even to think. Because I happen to be proper, prosperous today, I must not fancy that I shall be in my high estate tomorrow. As in a wheel, the uppermost spokes descend to the bottom in due course. So it is with mortal conditions. There is a constant revolution. Many who are in the dust today shall be highly elevated tomorrow, while those who are aloft shall soon grind the earth. Prosperity had evidently turned the psalmist's head, or he would not have been so self-confident. Let us beware lest the fumes of intoxicating success get into our brains and make fools of us also. How foolishly to think life will continue and how foolishly to expect that life should be free of trials and that's what we should pursue and hope and desire for. Number two, the absence of trials may indicate that we are not children of God. That is incredibly sobering. Hebrews 12.8 says, But if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. To live a life of ease may indicate that we are not truly believers. The psalmist actually lamented in Psalm 73. He said this, so I'm going to read um, 12 through 14 and then 16 through 19. <clears throat> it said, Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. So just listen to how he's describing the wicked here. This is really important for us to grasp because how many times have we in our own trials and our own difficulties, many of you young moms have single incomes and we really live in a society that really most of the time almost requires two incomes to survive. And so that means that you have chosen to please the Lord, to raise your children, to fear God. And in that, you are sacrificing, but that brings trials as you do that. 
It brings difficulties. And so it can be easy to look at the world and go, they just have it all. They have the big house, the new stuff. They have all the money for all the things. And here we are trying to barely make ends meet, scraping to keep food on the table or whatever it is. So listen as he describes the wicked. Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. So you see what he's doing. I'm suffering here and I'm doing what's right. And yet the wicked just continue on in their sin and everything seems to be going great for them. So he goes on. He says, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. The psalmist recognized that ultimately the wicked would be punished. Even though their earthly lives might be free from the trials that God brings upon his children, they are ultimately doomed for hell. And as we will see, as we walk through trials, it is so critical that we continue to keep that eternal perspective all the time. Because life as a believer is oftentimes the more difficult path to walk through. God as a good father brings adversity into our lives to accomplish several things in our lives. As we grow in our understanding of what God is seeking to accomplish, it enables us to cooperate with his sovereign plan. Aligning our expectations of trials to what scripture teaches will enable us to walk without sin through the adversity and suffering that trials bring. In this, God is glorified and we are blessed. So then D, scripture warns us that we will suffer. So if you had any doubt at all, scripture assures us that we will if we are truly his children. So Job 5, 7 says, For man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. Sparks don't ever go down until they've first gone up. You throw a rock into the fire, what happens? This is why we tell kids, don't throw anything in the fire. Because what does it do? It sends the sparks flying. That is how much we can be assured that we will experience trouble. And then Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Even the creation under the curse experiences the weight of trials, as, of course, do we. And Jesus said in Matthew 5.10, he said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those of you, those of us, when we experience persecution. So then E, what trials should accomplish? <clears throat> Number one, trials prove or test our faith. 
James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the Greek word trials and the word testing in that verse. So it says, when you encounter various trials, and then it says, knowing that the testing. So trials and testing, they're different words in the Greek, but they're very similar in their meanings. James is saying that we will encounter many different kinds of trials, and they come to test us to reveal the genuineness of our faith. And sometimes when we're walking through difficult trials, we don't care as much about this perhaps as we should. And that's why we need to be digging into scripture and praying and asking the Lord to give us wisdom so that we are looking at it from the perspective of eternity as we walk through it. And you know, as I have listed some of the trials, like I've listed ones that are a little bit more significant and we will all at some point walk through significant trials. If, if you haven't yet, you will. But oftentimes just the little things are our undoing as well. Continual little trials that don't let up, like having little children that are disobedient, having a teenager that is continuing to rebel and rebel and disrespect and disrespect. Each one of those things can be little circumstances all on their own, little incidents. But day after day, hour after hour, those things can be so wearing on us. Those are trials as well. And so whether it's big or whether it's really small, this applies to all the challenges that we face. So I don't want you to be listening to what I'm saying and go, oh, well, that just applies to, you know, something big like a car accident and you really get hurt or when you find out you have cancer. No, these things apply to our everyday walk of life as well, to the little things that happen. Just thought I should throw that in there. So then in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, it says this. It says, in this you greatly rejoice. We'll look at what this is in just a second. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. And then look what he explains. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is a fabulous passage on trials and what the purpose of the trials are. But he says, in this you greatly rejoice. Well, what is he talking about? He's referring to the three verses that came just before, and I'm going to read what this is that we're rejoicing in as we walk through trials. So here's the thing. Remember, we talk about the importance of renewing our mind, thinking biblically, because as you walk through a trial, you have to keep in mind an eternal perspective and this that he says in verse six is what it is. So actually I'm reading verses three through five here. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's what we rejoice in as we walk through trials. If you need to put that on your refrigerator, on your mirror, in your shower, on your dashboard, so that you are constantly remembering why you should rejoice, then do it. Because it is so critical to understand what we're rejoicing in. Because remember, James says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. That's not saying, oh, be joyful in the trial. The trial is so much fun. No, this is what he's talking about. This is what we're to rejoice in, that we have salvation, that our name is written in the book of life, that we have an inheritance with God. We will one day be in heaven with him and all the things, all the difficulties of this life will be gone. And we have to continue to remind ourselves of that because if we do not, we can be swept away with the trials and respond sinfully and not focus in the way that we ought to. And then what does this do? It strips away our ability to bring glory and honor to the Lord. And we end up living a life of sin in the midst of it. And then what happens? Then sin brings about what? Discipline, consequences, which are more trials. And then what happens? Then, because we're already discouraged, we're already frustrated, then we just continue and it becomes a cycle and the cycle and the cycle. And so in order to never enter into the cycle, we have to consider and remember the beauty and wonder of God's mercy and grace that we are His and we have an inheritance waiting for us that will not fade away, that will not perish, that will not be destroyed. In that, we focus in the trials. It is necessary for us to be distressed by various trials. Because remember, he says in there, he says, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Well, it is necessary for us to be distressed by various trials because it reveals the genuineness of our faith. Are we truly believers? Are we truly saved? As gold tried in the fire of the furnace is purified, so faith tried under adversity is also purified and strengthened. And ultimately, when Jesus Christ is revealed to us in person, this true, sincere, genuine faith will result in praise and glory and honor and MacArthur said this about that, that last phrase there. Incredibly, believers who are in this life are called to give honor to the Lord always. And they can, whoops, by their faithfulness in trials, elicit praise from the Lord in the life to come. We are constantly called by scripture to give honor to the Lord. And as we do that, then one day we will receive praise from the Lord. As you walk through 
the unexpected trials that you face to remind yourself that as you do this in a manner that pleases the Lord, you will receive praise from him one day. I don't know about you guys, but that to me is an amazing thing to comprehend. And of course, we know we can't do it apart from him. He's the one that even makes it possible. And yet he's still kind enough in the future to give us praise as we strive to do that. How important it is to remember this as you face trials, regardless of how big or small, short or long, as you faithfully persevere in each trial, you will one day receive praise from God. How absolutely amazing. So number two, trials produce endurance. And the Greek word there is hupomone. It means to remain under any trial. So it, re it means to remain even when the pressure is against you. Because what is our natural fleshly tendency whenever we're in a trial? Get out of it. If you're lonely and you're single, what is the natural fleshly thing to do? Find a husband. Compromise. There's all kinds of ways that we can compromise, but so often that's what we want. We just want to fix the problem. We want the pain to stop. And so we will oftentimes seek to get out from under it. And yet it is the trial that produces this endurance that enables us to continue to persevere even when the pressure is so great and the trial is so difficult. James 1.3 says, The testing of your faith produces endurance. As our faith is tested, it is strengthened. As we practice pleasing God through living righteously in the midst of the trial, it produces endurance, which is the ability to walk through the trial, to stay under the pressure it causes. As this occurs, our faith is strengthened and we grow in spiritual maturity. God knows the exact amount of pressure needed to bring that maturity in our lives. He only does what is best for us in terms of severity and length of trial. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. The word temptation is the same used, excuse me, the same word used in James for trials. So when Paul writes, no temptation has overtaken you, it's the same word that James says is the trials. So you see what's going on here. God will not bring any trial into our life that we will not be able to live in a manner that is righteous. And of course, what, what does he do? He gives us means in order to make that possible. He gives us the strength through the Holy Spirit, and he gives us his word to give us wisdom so that we know how. So number three, <clears throat> trials result in maturity. So James 1.4 says, And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So to give you some definitions here, perfect refers to spiritual maturity fulfilled in Christ-likeness, which is the goal of endurance and perseverance. Complete 
carries the idea of being whole or entire. And then we have lacking and nothing. And basically, this just kind of is reinforcing what he's already said. So lacking nothing <clears throat> means the end result of trials is maturity, completeness, completeness, not lacking in anything of spiritual importance and value. So I do want, just for a second, um, on your outline, this doesn't have a number or letter or anything, but just let the trial produce its perfect result. And I want to focus on this for just a second here because this is important. This perfect result is spiritual maturity. That's what we're looking to find from walking through the trials. The, the trial, is, as God uses it in our lives, should produce this perfect result, which is maturity. In order for this to be accomplished, we need to cooperate with what God is doing through the trial. If we respond sinfully, chafing against it, squirming, kicking at the goads. Do you guys know what that means to kick at the goads? The goad is the, the cattle prod. It's the thing that made the, the cows move, the oxen move. And when the Lord is, you can visualize it, prodding us along and we turn and kick at the goad, what are we doing? We're fighting what he's trying to do in our life. We don't want to be doing that. When we are complaining, discontent, angry, impatient, vengeful, or even becoming faint, then the trial will not accomplish its perfect result. And I am going to also highlight here the word faint, because this is taken from Hebrews 12.5, where it says, My son, do not faint when you are reproved by him. So talking of discipline, specifically here, we are told not to faint as we are experiencing the trials. And John MacArthur says this. He says, <clears throat> Some people become so overcome by their problems that they give up. They become despondent, depressed, faint. They become spiritually inert, unresponsive to what God is doing or why. They are not callous, complaining, questioning, or careless. They are simply immobilized. They give up and collapse. The cure for hopelessness is hope in God. The child of God has no need to faint because of God's discipline. God gives it to strengthen us, not to weaken us, to encourage us, not to discourage us, to build us up, not tear us down. And we see this with the psalmist in Psalms 42, 5. It says, why, the psalmist writes, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? And then he answers his own question. And he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. If you are walking through a stage of life that just seems to be continually bringing trials in whatever form they are, it is very easy to really succumb to the temptation of being faint in the midst of it, to just grow weary and give up. We can never do that. And the only way that we don't do that is by hoping in God, going back to his word and reminding ourselves of what we just looked at, that we have an inheritance, that we are his children. Number four, perseverance under trials reveals eternal reward, which is ultimately our salvation. <clears throat> 
James 1.12 said, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So what does this mean, the idea of the crown of life? Well, John MacArthur helps to explain that. He says a more literal translation could be the crown which is life, that is, eternal life. Perseverance does not result in salvation and eternal life, but, it's, it, but it is itself the result and evidence of salvation. So when we find that we are persevering through the trials, guess what that reveals? That we are children of God, and in that we rejoice because we know we have the hope of eternity with Him. So then number five, trials result in righteousness. So Hebrews 12, 11 says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So trials, or we could say God's discipline, is not pleasant in the moment. But when we cooperate with what God is doing, choosing to respond in the strength of the Holy Spirit, practicing his fruit in our lives. Remember what the fruit of the Spirit are. Patience, kindness, goodness, love, all those things. As we practice his fruit in our lives, as we navigate the trial, it produces righteousness in our lives. And remember what Paul says in uh, 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So if we are seeking to be holy, that means that as God brings the trials into our lives, we continually hope in God. We reflect on our eternal um, hope that is in Him, eternal life. <clears throat> the way we become holy like God is by letting the trial have its perfect result, by producing righteousness in us. Every trial, big or small, is designed by a good and gracious God to make us holy and righteous, which is what we are when we are spiritually mature. So then, F, how should we suffer? <clears throat> and as we just wrap up here, we need to know what does this look like? Well, we know, of course, what James says, right? Consider it all joy. So number one is with joy. So I'm just going to quickly, I want you to listen to these verses as I quickly read through them. So <clears throat> I won't even give you the references because most of these we've already gone over, but it says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful according to Hebrews. So that seems like a bit of an irony, right? Because we're actually commanded to be joyful, but discipline and trials are not joyful. So how does this work? So, but we have all these other verses that say that we're supposed to rejoice. So it says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. 
And then Matthew 5.11 says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Only as we keep an eternal perspective, remember God's purpose in our trials, will we be able to rejoice. No matter, as I said, how big or small, we have to constantly be reminding ourselves of God's purpose. The trials do not make us rejoice, but the eternal fruit they are producing in our lives should cause us to rejoice. So I thought I would finish by giving you kind of two, um, two things to evaluate in your own life. So <clears throat> there is a way to determine, perhaps, if we are suffering with biblical expectations in the midst of our trials. And the way to do that is to evaluate our attitude and our prayers. If our attitude reflects grumbling, so all of this is in the midst of our trial, remember, if our attitude reflects grumbling, complaining, bitterness, unforgiveness, envy, jealousy, etc., etc., it is evident that we have sinful, self-centered expectations in our trials. And if we do, what do we need to do? Repent, go to the Word, cry out for wisdom. But if our attitude reflects joy, peace, thanksgiving, patience, and kindness, it is evident that our expectations are focused on the things that are eternal. It reveals that our expectations mirror God's purpose for the adversity he has brought into our lives. And then we can consider our prayers as well. Do our prayers, our prayers also reflect whether our expectations are sinfully selfish or if they are focused on God's purpose? If we spend our time praying that God would remove the trial, it may indicate that our expectations are rooted in temporal earthly desires. However, if our prayers reflect what God is seeking to accomplish in our hearts, it reveals that our expectations are focused on God's will. So as you guys evaluate your own expectations of trials, consider those two things, your attitude and what do you pray for? So with all of that, let's go ahead and pray.